Many millions of years ago, on the planet Cybertron, life existed. But not life as we know it today. Intelligent robots that could think and feel inhabited the cities. They were called Autobots and Decepticons. But the brutal Decepticons were driven by a single goal, total domination. They set out to destroy the peace-loving Autobots. And a war between the forces of good and evil raged across Cybertron. Devastating all in its path, draining the planet's once rich sources of energy. The Autobots, on the verge of extinction, battled valiantly to survive. Welcome back to Who and Company, episode 66. I'm Brent. And I'm Drew. Our guest this month is more than meets the eye. He's a producer, a writer, and a director, and we have him to thank for many of the documentaries and special features that we enjoy on the Doctor Who DVD and Blu-ray ranges. It's Chris Chapman. Chris stops by to talk to us about how he became a director, his writing for Big Finish, and what he thought of the latest Doctor Who episode, The Power of the Doctor. Then Chris brings us his pick of the month, the long-running story of battling robots that spanned 38 years of comics, toys, movies, and multiple TV shows, Transformers. Find out how Chris and the rest of us discovered this blockbuster series, our thoughts on the 1986 feature film, and one of Chris's favorite soundtracks of all time. A quick note, the language in this episode gets a bit salty. Also, we discussed 1949's The Third Man probably more than is necessary for a podcast about Doctor Who and Transformers. As an added bonus, we are doing something we have never done before. We will release our first video clip of the interview on Twitter later this week, so look out for that. And all that's coming up right after this. The Transformers will return after these messages. So are you sure about this? Oh, stop worrying, Cliff. It's going to be fine. But you know, if anything goes wrong, we, we haven't got the doctor here to fix it for us. Well, technically, the doctor didn't fix it last time. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Bring the gear, will you, darling? Return to the Transformers. 
Our guest this month is an accomplished writer, producer, and director, most notable in Doctor Who circles as a director of tons of special features for the DVDs and Blu-rays, including Joe Grant's Return and the fantastic documentary Showman, The Life of John Nathan Turner. Chris Chapman, welcome to Who and Company. Oh, thank you very much, guys. Very happy to be here. Very happy. We are super excited to have you. Uh, right off the os- offset, I gotta say, for listeners, um, we're gonna be talking some Doctor Who news, so uh, spoilers for the most recent Jodie Whittaker finale. So if that's something you haven't watched, I'm sure none of this is going to become as a surprise to you as the internet is rife with spoilers, but you know, we just want to make sure that you know that we know that you know <laughs> that this is happening. So Chris, I'm gonna, I'm, I have to assume you've gotten a chance to watch uh, the Whittaker finale, Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's been a big, as they say, it's been a big news cycle, hasn't it? We have, where we're standing now, uh, Jodie's final episode went out in the UK last night, on the Sunday night, and then this afternoon, uh, the BBC account dropped uh, the new logo, which is the old logo, but the new logo, uh, and 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 even bigger than that, I think, is the, is the Disney Plus news. I mean, the logo yeah. is lovely to see, and I love the homage, and I guess the question is, is that the diamond year diamond is it shooty's logo going forward who knows but the big thing for me feels like um you know the show being on disney plus is exactly what i was hoping russell would do it which is really to maximize you know the reach of the show and the ambition of the show so that was the thing i got really excited about today but yesterday it was all about those you know i can't i just i didn't expect i don't know about you guys i did not expect chris chibnall to put together quite such a love letter to old school school who you know <laughs> I, I know all the cameos uh i know we said spoiler warning so we can say now you know people you know particularly for me uh the lovely scenes between sylvia aldred and sylvester mccoy and between janet fielding and peter davison those are my favorite bits but seeing you know william russell come back at the end uh and seeing all the doctors particularly particularly paul obviously because we never get enough paul uh, right. it was it was just a lot of stuff I didn't know about and didn't expect. Uh, and even down to the level of nerdy gags about the master's Dalek plan, the Dalek <laughs> and playing the recorder, you know, in the, in the proper tune. I was like, this is, this is insane. So I think we need to get all of this out of our system. Cause I think when, I think by the time shooty gets here, I feel like it'll be more about <laughs> bringing new people into the love rather than, rather than in, uh, giving a big bear hug to people like us who have loved it for a long time. Uh, but I, I I loved seeing those faces on it and I've worked with a lot of those guys. So seeing people like Janet and, and even at the end, people like Katie and William, you know, popping up, I just thought that was delightful. I was just really happy for them, you know, to, to see them be back in the heart of the show where they belong was, was lovely, really lovely. I think, and I haven't confirmed this yet, but I think... Um, that episode may have broken two world records as well um, in that uh, it might be for William Russell the longest period that any one actor has played any one character Um, because I know at one point in time the Brigadier Nicholas Courtney uh, was in the Guinness as as a character who had uh, the actor who had played that, that character for the longest period of time but between 63 and you know like we have sixty full years with William Russell. I mean that's got to probably be something. And then John Davy 
I think, played three characters in this most episode, which has got to have put him over the mark for most appearances in most separate stories as most characters in Doctor Who at this point in time. He, he must certainly have, have gotten there, so... I think the William Russell thing is really extraordinary. And as a lot of people are saying, he's the la- the last of that original four to have returned to the show in some way after, you know, after Megloss and the three doctors and, uh, and uh, five doctors and so on. And, and, and I guess the only things that can rival him are, I could be wrong. No, I'm not wrong on this. In the UK, if we're talking first and last appearances, then Ken Roach has been in Coronation Street Sorry, so William Roach has been in Coronation Street playing Ken Barlow between 1960, I think, and now, which would beat William. So in terms of first appearance, most recently. Okay. So William Roach has got him beat. But also, I guess, if Shatner, if William Shatner would come (laughs) back in like the next style, if Shatner does any more Star Trek films in the next few years before he dies, which would be a sad day, then obviously that would be 66 to mm-hmm. whenever so that's what it is now you're talking ian chesterton versus captain kirk in terms of sci-fi because what would it be before that you, you you've not there's nobody from quatermass that can come back there's nobody from the twilight zone who can come back you know not in not in that way uh, right. so now I, I think you're i think in sci-fi terms yes you're right. i can't think of anybody else in science fiction who who can say i was in it in 63 and i was in it in 2022 that's nuts and i I think it's important to point out that in terms of sci-fi terms is the only way i think uh so you know (laughs) like i'm not gonna sci-fi terms why not why would you think about anything else we're on a doctor who podcast we're gonna talk about transformers i mean like (laughs) let's 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 do this right um so all in told you enjoyed this special yes Yes, I, I did. I did. I did. I spent part of it thinking, I have no idea. Like if my daughter's four, and if I just plonked her down, if that was her first episode, I do not know what she would have made of it. And I, <laughs> and I kind of, there's a, and there's a, I think there's that paranoid part of any Doctor Who fan that thinks, what are the not we saying? Maybe they'll cancel it again. Oh no. And that's probably us being ultra, probably me being ultra paranoid, ultra defensive. As me, as a fan, I had an amazing time watching it. So I guess for now, I'm going to say that's all that really matters. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the show can reach out to new viewers like next time around. And that's fine. I think having it on Disney Plus is certainly, I don't think we have to worry about it being canceled anytime yeah. soon. No, it, no. It's, so, it's so ridiculous. Though. Like I've spoken to Toby Haydock about this a lot. And I think certainly for Doctor Who fans who were, around in the 80s there's still that deep-seated feeling that maybe somebody will take it away you know take our show away and and i think finally we're at a stage where you have to think well that will never truly happen again if it did get if it did go away it would come back as russell said mm-hmm. so that'd be amazing and plus i mean if any one company understands the intricacies of multiple shows being required to watch the next show it's Disney at this point in time with with the MCU. So, and I guess also Star Trek. So once Disney inevitably absorbs Paramount, um, <laughs> well. yeah. No, and, and, and I, you know, I know Disney is is contentious with some people, and I saw some people online today saying, "I hope that doesn't 
mean that the show can't be queer in the way that you'd you'd, you'd want Doctor Who to be. Can't be open and accessible in that way and represent diverse. Uh, but I think we've I feel like we've seen enough. Well, we know Russell well enough to know that they wouldn't get into bed with Disney without having creative freedom. So I think Disney will just represent the show being taken up to that level of visibility that means it can really have a, a global impact, you know, uh, with, with the messages that it has within it. So that, that's only ever going to be a good thing. I think also with the precedent that Doctor Who has set, um, it's a very safe bet for Disney to be able to reach those audiences that it might not have done so with its typical fare. So now they can look at it and go, see, we are international and progressive. Uh, and maybe, hopefully, fingers crossed, a little bleed through from one one show to the next. And again, for those who are listening to this who might have been surprised by the mention of, of Disney, because it is was just announced for us within the last couple of hours, um, they are not producing the show. They are merely, they have the rights to show the show everywhere in the, the world outside of the UK and Ireland, right? So if I'm, if I got that correct. As I understand it, it's, it's kind of taking over the role that BBC America played in, in the actual distribution of the show worldwide. You know, and I think that's I, I think that's what some of us suspected would happen that they would make that deal. But I think it's a great step, and I think it's a real line in the sand to say this is this is what the show is maybe aiming for uh, for the next phase, which is really exciting. Well, let's hope that they uh, put some money into more animations too. That would be great. Well, that hey. would be and and I'd love to see that. I know nothing about uh, what what whether there will be a next phase of that or what it would be. But, you know, like any fan, I'm looking at the Disney thing thinking, well, that, that seems encouraging, doesn't it? But I, yeah. I, I know nothing. I know nothing. So I would love to see, you know, the, the, the rest of them animated as much as you guys would. So uh, fingers crossed. Okay. So if, if you could get one animated, which one it would it be? <laughs> well, well, the, the numbers would dictate that Dalek's master plan would be, you know, if you were going to say one story, that would be the one that I think has been such a big monolith <laughs> above the range. Uh, I think I'd love to see them find a way to do that one day. That would be really special. But nerdily, I'd love to see things like the Myth Makers, things like um, the Savages, I think are really underrated, uh, great little stories. And, and I'd, I'd be really excited to see those. And I guess Marco Polo as well. Uh, I feel like we've, it feels like we've seen Marco Polo more than say the Savages, because we have so, so many lovely photos and the telesnaps, and, but particularly those color photos that we have for that. Uh, but I still think Marco Polo would be such a great story to be able to watch properly in one go that I would I would say any of those four. Uh, oh, and the massacre as well. I mean, there's loads, yeah. of them. there's loads of them. But but particularly those kind of season three stories where the show is in a really ambitious phase of just saying we can do anything. <laughs> you know, we can do any type of story. I think seeing a few of those animated would be fantastic. So maybe one day. So, Chris, uh, where did this love begin? Where did you first get into Doctor Who? Oh, uh, I I think I've always been drawn to science fiction and stuff. And I, I like like many of us, you know, I, my Doctor Who love is there alongside a love for Star Trek and a love for Star Wars. Uh, and just all the science fiction we were getting fed as kids, you know, whether that was uh, for me... Things like 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 cartoons, things like like Thundercats and Transformers, but things like Jason the World Warriors and older stuff like like Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet, or you know the Jerry Anderson stuff coming through. Uh, but Doctor Who, I think, was the first show 
I remember being allowed to stay up a little bit later for, because it would have been on, in the 80s, I started with, uh, I have vague memories of Trial of a Time Lord stuff, but really my hardcore memories of uh, McCoy, particularly Remembrance of the Daleks. And by then it's a kind of, I think a 7.30 kind of show in the UK. Uh, it's a bit later than that Tom Baker, John Pertwee heyday. Um, and so I think it represented for me the first chance I had to stay up a little bit later and watch something a little bit scary that I wasn't supposed to. And like for many people, Doctor Who is this kind of gateway drug into the horror genre, into sci-fi horror. Uh, so I was watching things like Remembrance of the Daleks and finding, you know, the girl who we think who's kind of in the Davros chair, the creepy girl in the schoolyard. I remember finding that really creepy. I remember being terrified by the Candyman and thinking the clowns in Greatest Show in the Galaxy were really, really scary. And and then survival, I think, really freaked me out. This idea that you might turn into something else and and ultimately the ace turns and you think, oh, well, the doctor's going to have to use his best friend in order to get home. He's going to have to kind of use an abuser to get home. I remember finding that really disturbing and frightening. Um, so I was kind of hooked by that point. And then it was when the show in the UK, they did a, a repeat season on BBC Two in the run up to the 30th anniversary and during it. And they showed Time they showed uh, time Meddler and uh, Mind Robber and Sea Devils and the Demons and Genesis and Androzani and Re Revelation and Battlefield, uh, and I watched them all. And, and just the archival nature of that, of going, I didn't realize it was a show before the, these 80s doctors, uh, you know, watching the Time Meddler and it feeling ancient to watch a 60s show in 1992 as a 11 year old. Um, and then I remember being absurdly excited for when the TV movie came along in 96 and absurdly sad, like really broken when it didn't get picked up, you know, I love, I know it's a contentious episode, but I, I remember loving McGann and loving that. I think Jeffrey Sachs does such a beautiful job on the direction of it. And I love the bombastic music and, and to see it done with some money <laughs> was just uh, amazing. And I remember watching it and then immediately watching the VHS again, straight after I didn't get, I didn't buy it on the V. I, I decided to, to wait for the bank holiday Monday that it was on here in the UK, Whitson bank holiday Monday it was on. Um, and so, yeah, and so that was me, like, solidified. Uh, but then I, I, like many people, went to university. I drifted away from it. It wasn't on telly. And then it was really when Russell announced that it was coming back in 2004 uh, that I completely signed back on and started getting the magazine again. And then flash forward to 2008, and I was making, I was then working, making telly uh and making kind of non-broadcast corporate stuff as well and realized wait a minute i could be making things for these dvds i should could be doing special features <laughs> and that started uh i guess like 14 years which is kind of scary of of me making doctor who films alongside my day job in telly so it's always been the side hustle that varies in terms of how carried away i get uh but has allowed me to play and has allowed me to try different genres and grow and learn and go from being a director who didn't know anything about lenses to kind of shooting them myself and and then seeing them through the edit with with a lovely editor, editor called Rich Alderson who I've worked with Rich for years. Uh, so it's a very happy 
way that things have kind of coalesced and it's become a professional thing but i still very much see it as as a fan you know and uh, and that's I, I think with all these releases that's the lovely thing about the team is it is genuinely people who've grown up with the show and love it and want it to be a success uh what was it that made you want to become a director in the first place uh, weirdly I, i've always loved film so I've always been a movie nerd and I was in the UK. I was always getting kind of Empire Magazine and Total Film was here as well. And I was watching like Mark Cousins on BBC Two doing Movie Drome. And uh, so I've always been a movie nerd. I thought I was going to become a movie reviewer. So I thought I was, my university is all geared around becoming an arts journalist. And I thought I was going to go away and work for Empire or something. And then just randomly I fell into telly and then realized I could just make these things myself, couldn't I? I could just just <laughs> do these things. Uh, and I'd been directing in theatre before. I'd, I joined like the student theatre group when I went to uni, uh, and I was I would write plays and I would direct and produce plays, and and so I thought, well, that's that's the same thing. And I know all about film, so I guess I could just do those two things together. So it's it happened quite unexpectedly, uh, but but that's back in my first telly job was in two thousand and five. Uh, so I guess that's kind of 17 years ago, which again is quite disturbing. But uh, but no, I love it. And I, I mean, for me, it's just, it's a cliche, but it is just kind of having the chance to tell stories and whether that's through uh, the kind of stuff we do when it's a bit more traditional and, and kind of talking heads telling a big diverse story or whether it's a bit more uh, going on a, a road trip adventure with people and filming in a more, more fluid style. Uh, I think it's... Uh, all of that stuff appeals to me and uh, getting to to make it on the Doctor Who range where we have a lot of creative freedom is kind of the dream really to be able to, to do that so hopefully they won't get rid of me just yet and we can keep doing it <laughs> I have a, a, a question about movies for you it is the most boring question to ask about movies but I'm just curious do you have a favorite movie some folks don't some folks do I'm just kind of curious I've usually got like about five or so. And I think this locked about 20 years ago and it hasn't changed much since, but because people used to ask at uni and I think I still stand by in no particular order. The films, my favorite films rather than the best films ever are probably the ones that have influenced my kind of my mood and my tone, the way I, you know, I want my films to be really compassionate and big hearted uh, and joyful and full of life, whatever they're doing. And so uh, uh, the Powell and Pressburger movie, A Matter of Life and Death, uh, with David Niven, Kim Hunter, uh, I, I love the heart of that movie and the ambition of that. I've always gone back to It's a Wonderful Life. You know, I keep going back every Christmas. Uh, I used to watch it with my parents as well. And so It's a Wonderful Life will still make me cry. I love The Conversation, uh, the Coppola movie that he made in between the two Godfathers. Yeah. For that, for that lonely, that beautiful loneliness that it gives Harry Cole and the music I was listening to today, um, and the, the third man, the Carol Reed movie with uh, with with Joseph Cotton and and Orson Welles, uh, but then genre stuff, you know, I can't deny Star Wars, you know, original uh, edition, I can't deny uh, Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Uh, I come back to movies like you know a lot of genre stuff like The Wicker Man and Brain Dead and. Uh, I come back to again and again 
uh, and Transformers the movie eighty six. You know, <laughs> if you put it, if you said what movie would you most like to watch on your deathbed before you die, <laughs> you kind of adopt an Optimus Prime pose. And and uh, and as I was turning grey and handing over the Matrix, I'd have uh, I'd have kind of Stan Bush singing "You Got the Touch" on the on the new. <laughs> that that would be fine. I'd be okay with that. On previous episodes, um, we have done one where we will choose a favorite movie of our own, and we'll oh. pair it with an episode or story of Doctor Who. Um, yeah. And I'm just kind of curious. So we've we've uh, if any of the ones that you had suggested. Now I really now Brent feel like i have been challenged i want to do uh, i want to do one with talk about the third man and talk about <clears throat> uh, what doctor who story i would pair with that so i'm gonna have to think about that one for a, a future a future episode i just saw something it might have been 1980s horror film alligator but i'm pretty sure there's a reference to harry lime in the sewers as they're looking for an alligator it just says harry lime lives spray painted across the wall and i was like amazing look at that (laughs) that is not where you'd expect to find a reference to that's the robert foster one isn't it yes Uh, yeah yeah yeah. uh yeah and there's there's an amazing uh third man reference in my other love that we could have talked about today which is the carry on films uh, as a british institution uh because in carry on spying they literally have I think they either have Kenneth Hawtrey, so they either have Kenneth Williams or Charles Hawtrey. Emer- no, they have Jim Dale, I think, emerging from the sewer in a suit. Uh, and and the the Harry Lyme theme is playing, the zither from the mm-hmm. third man da, 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 is playing as they do a sewer skit. And you're like, I did not expect to see a third man reference in the middle of Carry On Spine, but uh, but it is there. What, third man, I don't know. I mean, I think what it lends itself to with Doctor Who is there's a lot of running down corridors in the third man and their version of corridors is kind of rain drenched cobble street in Vienna, uh, which immediately makes me think of some of the stuff with the invisible monster in Vincent and the doctor, weirdly, even though that's not the tone of the rest of the episode necessarily, but, but it's, but it's sewers. Maybe it's the invasion or maybe it's attack of the Cybermen. Have we done sewers as doctor who done sewers? Absolutely. Lily gets attacked by the giant rat in the sewer. So you're right. Yes. Yeah. So Talons would be a good could be a good pairing with that. Have we ever done Ferris? and 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 Talons also has um, discussion of drugs, right? So we've got Harry mm-hmm. switching out the drugs, uh, and all the children are are suffering for it. Um, Absolutely. I don't know too. if there's a, a there's a streak of casual racism running through, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I, I mean, I think the but, argument but, could be it doesn't have to be a, a one for one kind no, of comparison. No, no. But, but, but you're right with Thomas because it also has that theatrical thing, and the third man has the has the whole thing that uh, what's her name, Alida Valley, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the the main girl in it is, mm-hmm. is 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 a performer on the stage. And there's all those lovely scenes when 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 uh, when Holly goes behind the scenes to kind of to, to try and get her attention off from the from the kind of cabaret show that they're doing, and that that would remind me of talent. So maybe it's talents. And 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 Doctor Who has a very similar theme. Sorry, folks, we're going off from the movie content, where the Doctor shows up in an area and just becomes embroiled, almost by invitation, embroiled in this mystery that they have to. Um, think. I think the the other the other thing you could say is that Harry Lyme in himself is quite a doctorish figure. You know, this kind of charming but mysterious and slightly kind of is he 
is he just a bit, you know, he, he's he, he, obviously Harry Lyme is very callous, but the, the doctor sometimes has that, that feeling of, of look, you know, some doctors could look at people down below and say, you know, are these just ants? Are these people? You know, if that came out of certain doctors' mouths, the idea that that, that alienness, I feel like Harry Lyme is an alien. And, and so if Orson Welles were to play the doctor, you know, if, if Welles had played the doctor in America in the 40s or 50s or something like that, that would have been amazing and he's so beautiful still at that point you know he's 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 such a uh a, a beautiful man and so it's it's always that thing that he's only in the movie for like 15 minutes but he completely takes over the movie and your impression of the movie entirely um, yeah and of course you know we get to talk a little bit more about orson wells in just a uh, just a short period of time here but but we should probably <laughs> cover something else for a moment <laughs> I'd actually forgotten that connection as well. So maybe maybe Orson is what it all comes back to. <laughs> so you're also a writer for Big Finish. Um, actually, you've I was going down the list of stories you've written, and uh, three of them jumped out as being some of my favorite stories from Big Finish. Uh, Iron Bright, Warzone, and Scorched Earth. I love those. Uh, how did your writing career get started, and how did it lead to Big Finish? Oh, well, thank, I'm glad you enjoyed this. Uh, yeah, the I've always written since I was a kid, and that kind of began with me literally writing science fiction stories about the kids I didn't like it in primary school, where aliens would come into the school and write about how me and my friends would escape over to the left as the people I didn't like were being brutally murdered over to the right. So it kind of began in a slightly morbid uh, real-life way. And, uh, and when I was working, when I started to work in telly, I worked for a company that was making uh, non-broadcast stuff that was making films for clients. And and I started to write my own scripts for those. So I would, uh, we did a film called The Conquerors and The Conquerors, Conquer with a K, uh, was for a, a company that wanted to uh, to produce an anti-bullying film. And so myself and a colleague, Stephen Boyle, pitched a story about a school where conquer fighting had gone underground, and it was basically like a, a uh, it was basically like, like 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 a pastiche on Fight Club, but uh, but done with kind of 13, 14 year old kids. And uh, Stephen directed that, and I kind of I, I was I worked on the production, uh, but it won a few awards at the time on on a small scale. Uh, and when I got talking to Dan Hall at the Beeb, uh, I showed him the Conquerors as an example of the work I'd been involved in that helped me get into the documentaries. But I think what happened was I, I then interviewed Nick Briggs uh, from Big Finish for uh, possibly our documentary about death to the Daleks, because he's such a big fan. And I off the back of that, I think I sent him the conquerors and said, here's an example of the kind of thing I'm writing, uh, which is very much kind of popcorn short film rather than pretentious short film. Uh, is that do you think I could pitch for Big Finish? And he was lovely and, and said, you know, the door's open if you want to pitch. And, I, and weirdly, I sat on that for a couple of years and and didn't really do it and was busy, but also I think was probably a bit scared of it. And um, and then I pitched them uh, the story that became The Memory Bank, which Alan Barnes uh, script edited. And that's the one that had Peter Davison and, and Mark Strickson in it. And... And then that was it, really. And I was and I was just very lucky to to. It's probably slightly corrupt because I kind of got in through uh, the Doctor Who connections I had already. Uh, but I love the Big Finish writing. It's been such a lovely tonic alongside the other work that I do. So that when you're going mad 
trying to get availability to work between between loads of contributors or trying to get access to a particular location just to be able to go away and write a script where you're literally like joe says this and then janet says that and you, you can <laughs> you're a fascist about it you can just say well this is what will happen um is really therapeutic <laughs> and, and i've been writing today for a new one that i'm writing for colin and and that will be about the kind of 12th or 13th i think that i've done and uh so i love doing them and, and all of them have been something like iron bright was literally because i moved to bristol and i was hearing all about isambard kingdom brunel and i thought well i should write about brunel but i don't want to write about bristol and the bridge because everybody talks about that so uh oh this thames tunnel that he worked on with his dad when he was 20. Nobody really talks about that, do they? But that sounds like a great place to put a Doctor Who story, is in a tunnel that kept collapsing in real life and getting flooded and what could be behind that? Uh, Scorched Earth was my grandpa uh, went into Normandy on D-Day, D-Day plus 21. Uh, so he was late and everything, had, all, the, all the, the big fighting had all happened. And so he is literally Walter in that story that he's the guy who's late for the fight and is going through French villages. And uh, Grandpa didn't tell me anything about the uh, uh, the reprisals that were happening against uh, against people who were seen as collaborators. But I, I started reading about that and thinking that's a really interesting area that I've not seen explored. So I guess all of them, I try and make sure they grow from something that means something to me in the first place, even if they then go into a very Doctor who -y kind of area and it's just been really fun I, I i hope that i can keep doing them and and always have them going on uh i don't think i suspect i will never become a full-time writer just because i love the mix of it so much i don't i think i love working with people and working with real life contributors where you don't know what they're going to say and then they'll say something that's better than anything you could write uh, so i think i'll always try and mix it up between them but uh, i'm glad you enjoyed them thank you for saying that sure I mean, I'm curious uh, because when you were discussing watching Doctor Who as a child, you you mentioned the latter era Doctors of the classic era, and your big Finnish Doctors are the latter era. Do you have a favorite? I mean, not to say favoritism, but is there a favorite Doctor to write for? Is there a story that you like telling that is better for one Doctor than an another? I think through through no particular design, I've ended up working a lot with Colin, and and I've done I don't know I feel like I've done like five or six Collins, and and I'm very happy with that because I think Colin's great, uh, and I and I don't know why that is I I I certainly Colin was the first Doctor I remember seeing on telly, so I think I I do feel a connection that way. I suspect I've often have to had to rein in before like if you were to go and see any of the plays I wrote as a student you would come out of them and say, that was really overwritten. That was really like verbose and like somebody had discovered a thesaurus. Uh, and you could argue it was like channeling Pip and Jane Baker even then, you know, you know <laughs> God rest his soul. And, and, and so I think the verbosity of Colin's Doctor suits me quite well. But I quite like to have a Doctor who can just say something uh, highfalutin and, 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 and extravagant. Uh, and maybe I would, I'd love to write for like, Chris Eccleston, I'd love that. But I, I wonder if I would find that harder to say, okay, this is a doctor who doesn't say so much. And this is a doctor who for whom like less is more. Uh, I think I'd have to really challenge myself to do that. And I'd love to do it. But but I think with Colin, there's a there's a natural uh I find that 
easy to come into that vein. And I love the companions that Big Finish have given him. I think that that Flip and uh, Constance, I think, are really great, and it's such a good contrast. And I've had them. I've done two with both of the minutes, and I've done one more with just Constance. Uh, but I think they're a great partnership. Uh, but but genuinely, I mean, I've done a, a Tom one that's not been out yet that I think is out next year called The Friendly Invasion, uh, which was again really it just that was amazing because it was like thinking fucking hell I get to say things that the Fourth Doctor is going to say, um, and I've written for Peter and I really like that with Peter the something like War Zone has been a lot more. It's yeah, on one level, it's that lovely Doctor Who thing. It's completely fucking ridiculous. You know, it's a basically a big tough mudder type uh, Iron Man race thing uh, where it's so deadly, it's so dangerous that it kills you. Uh, so it's completely silly, and it turns out there's something awful going on behind it. But the Doctor's reaction to it is dead straight. And the situation he finds himself in is really serious. And that's always been my favorite Doctor Who thing is to, to take something that seems completely lunatic and to say, well, yeah, but what, but what But what if it happened? You know, if it actually happened to you, it would be a pretty big deal, wouldn't it? It would be good. So uh, I'd love to write for, I mean, I, I, I don't really make too much of a distinction between new and old Who. So I'd love to write for any of the new Doctors that, that have come into the fold. You know, I'd love to do an Eccles one or uh, or a, a David Tennant or anything like that. Uh, I'm easy on that. But but no, it has been Colin so far that we've tended to stray towards and very happy with that too, definitely. It's something that we've discussed many times on this podcast is that how much of a, a Colin Baker renaissance big finish has, has brought into effect. And, you know, you ask me which of my favorite doctor is, I might find a hard time to, to describe who that is. But certainly to listen to it's always going to be Colin and to the point where like I would argue that maybe Colin is my favorite doctor not but not because of any of the visual stuff but entirely because of the audio um, I, I just love what what people are still mining from him and his character or his interpretation of the doctor I should say so you know thank you for contributing to that no thank you and, and I'm, I'm sure Colin would be happy to hear that too I think that I mean I, I find a lot to love in his TV era, but you can't help but feel that uh, there is a negativity that sometimes comes through it, you know, in its treatment of the Doctor, particularly Perry and their relationship uh, in season 22 can be so antagonistic. And I really loved writing, I wrote one called Plight of the Pimpernel last year or maybe the year before, uh, which was kind of set it in between the end of in between revelation and mysterious planet so it was kind of at the point when their relationship should be softening and and that was so much fun to write because colin and nicola have a genuine chemistry and a warmth between them that i kind of wish the show had tapped into sooner you can see that that course correction they're doing for the start of trial of a time lord but uh, if if they'd had a chance to do that from the beginning then you've got the story of, of a girl who sees the worst in her best friend right on day one, you know, where her best friend tries to kill her. And and so the, the fact that she decides to stay and help him and try and get him through this awful time and, and, and that they come out of it, you know, as this compassionate pair of friends, that's the story kind of I wish they'd told. But they, they didn't. They just kind of had them continue to argue and bicker. And, uh, but I think there's a lot of, fruit in that relationship that uh, 
big finish is definitely explored. And I think Colin and Nicola and all those regulars have really benefited from being able to just to calm it down a bit <laughs> and not and not and not bicker so much, definitely. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. You got the touch. You got the power. Right, it absolutely is a contentious era of television, uh, and Doctor Who was not the only television show at that time that was fairly contentious, or at least had fighting in it. Uh, every time we have a Doctor Who guest on our program, we understand that Doctor Who is not the end-all and be-all of their fandom, so we ask them to bring a show that is not Doctor Who to discuss with us on Who and Company. Chris, what show do you want to talk to us about? even though we've alluded to it several times already in the podcast. <laughs> well, I, I was so excited when you asked about this because uh, I thought, you know, like, like many Doctor Who fans, you know, we, we, we have other interests within uh, that kind of science fiction-y genre. And I guess the only one I've really got that kind of rivals it. Have I, I've got some examples. You might have noticed that we have some friends uh, in the room and uh, and maybe I'll introduce you to a couple of them to help explain this. So... <laughs> Or our listeners at home, Chris is going into his kitchen oh, and bringing back a giant here, robot. So I'm a big fan of Transformers uh, and have been since I was a kid. This is Omega Supreme. Uh, this is uh, the Omega that they brought out a couple of years ago. Uh, he is, he's, he's, he's huge. So he can stand here. Maybe he can be like that. Maybe you can just see his claw in shot there. And then <laughs> he's now going back into the kitchen to get more giant robots. Oh my. This is a Oh really, wow. This is my nice Megatron here. He's he's quite fun. He's a good one. This this part of the viewership are like, why are they playing with toys? Why have you got toys out? What's going on? <laughs> and this is me, Grimlock. Mm. Yes, this is a, a good Grimlock there. And and basically, um I wonder if I can pull a Grimlock there and then Megatron. <laughs> he is now uh, setting up his Transformers for the benefit of Brent and myself. But I got to say, that is a, a really incredible Megatron. So basically, um, as you all know, uh, there was a, a TV series, a cartoon in the 80s. In uh, 1984, it started. Uh, Transformers, which was basically their... You've got three things that happen at the same time, whereby uh, Hasbro uh, go over to Japan and they discover these, they're looking for a brand new toy they can sell to young boys in America primarily. And, excuse me, and they discover that a company called Takara uh, are already making these great little toys that transform uh, from robots into vehicles. And there's this and and there's this other and they're called Diaclone and there's another range called Micro Change, which is robots that transform into things that are life size, like a, a gun or a cassette player. And they go, oh, let's take all these toys and we'll make it its own universe and give it a story that we can sell. And so they get Marvel in the states um, and primarily a chap called Bob Budiansky 
to to write a limited edition comic series in the states, and they they get uh, Sunbow, isn't it? Sunbow to 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 make a cartoon series, and ultimately, I think the order of events is I think that the toys come first, and then the comic comes out, and then the cartoon comes out, but it all hits the zeitgeist at around the same time, and and in the UK. Uh, I probably come into this story in about 1986 or seven, because uh, Transformers were just this cool toy uh, that you could, you know, that you could. Uh, it's like a toy and a puzzle in one go. It, you'd be given it, and you wouldn't want to look at the instructions. You'd want to try and figure out how to change it from one thing to the other. So it's like Rubik's cube meets Action Man, but with a bit of mythos behind it. And you thought, oh, well, these things actually have characters. And unlike GoBots, these things don't have really ridiculous names. Uh, so I want to know more about these and. And I, I, so I guess I bought the toys and loved the toys and had a lot of the toys. And I, the cartoon was quite sporadically shown in the UK, mostly on a show called Whack-A-Day that was presented by Timmy Mallet, uh, who probably didn't make the journey across the pond. Uh, but Timmy was the presenter on that. And they would show, uh, they, I don't think they'd show them in a full episode. They'd strip it across a couple of days and they'd show the original G1 episodes with Optimus Prime and Megatron uh, fighting over Energon cubes. But the big thing for me was actually uh, in about 87, 88, I got hold of the Marvel comic in the UK. And that's really like the absolute dead center of this uh, fascination I have with these guys because I got hold of the comic uh, on a round issue. It's like issue 202 or so, I think. So I was quite late to the party. But this was a story called Time Wars, and Time Wars was written by a British writer called Simon Furman, and it was obscenely violent. It was like the most violent thing I'd ever encountered. And, and obviously, your parents go, "Oh, that's a toy comic, so yeah, you can have that, son. Yeah, that's fine." <laughs> and then like going, "Oh my God, they've ripped his face off, and and Galvatron just got pulled into the a time rift, and they've his whole body's been ripped apart." And because they were robots, and there's no blood. Uh, there's just circuits and oil. They could just decapitate people and rip them apart. And, and so as a seven-year-old, you're thinking, this is just uh, amazing. And they were proper like little sci-fi concepts going on, you know, really good writing. Um, and so I started feverishly to try and uh, track down old copies of the comic at, at Christmas and summer fates at school when people would would be selling old toys and cast-offs. They sell a lot of old comics. So I'd buy back issues. And there's that fascination when you're a kid because you're always late to the party. You know, you've come into a family that's already got a history. You're you're coming in not at the beginning. So to, to be able to trace it back and say, what happened before issue 202? And I realized as I went on, there was this, certainly this is something I appreciate now as a creative, as a professional. There's this amazing thing that actually was going on with Transformer Comics where uh, you had this, you had the American series was a monthly traditional Marvel type series and they did about 80 of those from start to finish. Uh, but in the UK, they wanted to release it weekly, sometimes fortnightly, but in its pomp, it was a weekly, weekly uh, comic strip. And so they didn't have enough material. They were reprinting the American stuff, but it wasn't enough to, to get four hits every month. And so this British writer, Simon Furman, was tasked, uh, along with a couple of writers at the beginning, but he took over, he was tasked with, with writing stories that filled the gaps, writing stories that could go in between the American stories and not upset the apple cart, kind of keep the status quo. 
And he did that in the most inventive way that I can really uh, imagine. And he would use characters who weren't being used properly. He would examine the fallout from an American story that was just happy to move on to the next thing. He'd be like, yeah, but what what, what about that guy who got smashed up? You know, how's he doing that? (laughs) And there's this amazing moment when the movie comes out, the cartoon movie uh, comes out in 1986, where the American comic says, actually we we can't we're not going to do anything with the movie stuff we don't think we're going to do anything with the, this future cast of characters that the movie introduces from 2005 in the movie uh we're not going to do that and the uk comic goes if you're not going to use those guys we are going to go to town with those and we're going to have them traveling back in time and we're also going to have two storylines going one in the present day one in the future and suddenly you you have this liberation of a writing team an art team who have been filling in the gaps. They suddenly get bigger and bigger and more ambitious until the point when the American writer uh, decides he's had enough and the British writer takes over his job, gets to take over his job and run the American comic. And it goes through this 20 issue period of the most ambitious, uh, fun storytelling it ever did and then was cancelled before its time, you know, very much like the McCoy era, Doctor Who, you know, before, at its very peak creatively, it was kind of snuffed out. But that always stayed with me uh, that uh, uh, that this comic had punched so far above its weight. And the nearest thing I could see, the, the cartoon I always loved, but it was very much aimed at younger kids. Uh, but then the movie, the 86 movie, that the comic had also fallen in love with, the 86 movie uh, is, again, so violent. <laughs> and so... Unbelievably uh, so, uh, violent. It's uh, and, and has that kind of has that kind of hair metal, soft rock kind of soundtrack, uh, which I still will put on and listen to. uh, And so I really chimed with the movie and I know a lot of people have affection for that. And I just love, I think the movie is is really underrated as a piece of animation. I think it Mm -hmm. was using a lot of Japanese animators who are also working on things for Studio Ghibli and working with Maizaki. And so it has that kind of slightly manga, very Japanese vibe to it but it's American action, Gusto. Uh, I, so I, I love that clash of that. And and I guess it's continued that I, I, I'm not a fan of, like many Transformers fans, I'm a bit of a cliche, I'm not not a fan of the Michael Bay stuff uh, in the recent movies. I, I kind of, I like the aesthetic of saying, okay, how would this car actually transform? And I love the, uh, the scene with the helicopter transforming at the beginning of the first one. I love it when it treats itself seriously. Uh, but uh, Michael Bay's sensibilities are not are not uh, something I enjoy. So I, I I I haven't loved that. But at the same time as that was happening, a comic company called IDW uh, was having a real renaissance of comic storytelling. And so there's been a series called More Than Meets the Eye that ran for about five years in the teens uh, that an amazing writer called James Roberts wrote. Uh, alongside um, uh, uh, a series called Robots in Disguise that was set on Cybertron, which James Barber wrote. And the comics really had uh, a second heyday uh, of about five or six years that's only really just come to a close. Um, and that really got me back into it again and started buying these arseholes here. And uh, <laughs> it's good. So, so, that, so, so that is kind of the, that, that, that is where I'm at. Where do you guys feature in that? Are you of my generation that you were getting the toys when you were kids or? 
Let's start with Brent. So Brent, let's <laughs> let's. What was your first foray into Transformers, toys, comics, or the cartoon? I'm not sure. I I'm sh- I know I watched it. I didn't keep up with it from day to day, but I definitely had some of the action figures. Um, it was a really big deal back then, and probably the greatest toy marketing gimmick of all time. Uh, these folding uh, toys that turn into two different things, and and you know, having watched some of these recently, it may have been. I think it may have been one of the first animated shows that had an ongoing story arc on television. Um, but no, it, but as for the the movie, I just watched the movie for the first time yesterday. Yeah. I really liked it. I uh, watched it last night. Um, I, there are a lot of things in there that were different. Like you said, it was it was a lot more violent, <laughs> like the the beheading at the end, and and um, which was also picked up in the in the cartoon later from the other one uh, you asked us to watch. Uh, I did a double take when Spike said a curse word. Um, yeah, I also, if you bought that on video in the UK, that that was that was cut out. So yep. I discovered oh, okay. it about five years ago. Anyway, continue. But that's an amazing moment. Well, they had some big name talent as voices. They had uh, Judd Nelson, which was he was fresh off of Breakfast Club. Leonard Nimoy, to me, stole the show as uh, Galvatron. Uh, Eric Idle, Robert Stack, Orson Welles, Drew. Who <laughs> <laughs> was to me was unrecognizable with the voice effects. But yeah, it doesn't I, <clears throat> doesn't sound. I, I remember getting the big booming almost character voice of Orson Welles in my head uh Unicron was definitely a a different voice and when I was listening to it because I also watched it again last night not for the first time I did see it in theaters many times uh but I was just like oh I remember it, it, for me my memory was more like Pinky in the Brain where they're doing an Orson Welles impression but deeper and more robotic and it it is almost unrecognizable it's almost like why why choose Orson Welles to do it, except to say that, hey, Orson Welles, do you want to per- perform in a movie that will also have a Weird Al Yankovic song? <laughs> as far as we know, it's the only time that, that the Weird Al Yankovic and uh, Orson Welles have come into each other's orbits, uh, literally, in this case. They, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. It's quite contentious as well, because famously, Welles died before the production had wrapped. And so he's quite weak, I think, when he was in his recording sessions, which is partly why they're adding the boomy effect. Mm-hmm. But the story goes that Leonard Nimoy actually records some of Unicron's lines in order to complete the film. You know, so when you're saying, I don't know if I recognize him, it, it may be that you're hearing a Nimoy line or a weak, it's certainly not Wells at his best, but I do, I do think he gives Unicron at times a kind of Noel Coward-esque charm you know, you know that there is a kind of I have summoned you here for a purpose, and like just <laughs> me to be the first, and all this. <laughs> in the same way that Bane in Dark Knight Rises is ever so slightly, slightly camp and Noel Coward esque, yeah. as well as being super macho and he's going to beat you up. You know, I kind of, I kind of enjoy that. Uh, I think, I, you know, I, I can objectively look at the film and say there are some weird things about this, and the whole idea that Unicron is basically going to the one thing in the universe that can destroy him. And you think, Unicorn, can, we, can you not go elsewhere and just have a nice time? Fortunately, the comic <laughs> the comic manages to, to, to retcon that to make sense, that, Uni- that, that Cybertron is actually Primus, who is the, 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 the ancient opposite of Unicron. And so they're destined to come together and he can't help it, but come there. But you do kind of think, well, why are you... 
going there. And I've heard some people say, oh, I thought the planet at the very beginning was Cybertron because it looks like Cybertron and it's full of robots. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's a good point. I don't know why you no, would write it like that. You know, it's it's a really and like I remember so in preparation for today's talk, I, I rewatched the first couple of episodes of the the television program. Um, you know, this was for me, um, you know, I am at the perfect age where 1984 to 1987 was, I was the target audience. So in the United States, I watched and consumed the cartoons of Transformers, He-Man, and G.I. Joe Mm -hmm. every single day. Yep. And recorded them and watched them on the weekends. Uh, I had uh, the toys, though G.I. Joe is a lot cheaper than Transformers. So Transformers was the kind of a little cost prohibitive. So my first Transformers that I bought with my own money were all the cassettes. Loved those while my friends were getting, you know, the bigger ones. And I remember getting Sideswipe and Starscream for Christmas that year while also getting the, uh, and my timeline's probably off, like I feel like the newer versions of, of um, a Snake Eyes and Storm Shadow that came out uh, around that same time. You know, I read all the comics. Um, the covers to the original four comics for the Transformers were done by um, Bill Sienkiewicz, and they were terrifying. Like all, like all Bill Sienkiewicz artwork, it is scary to young children in the way that the Doctor Who theme titles are scary to young children. There's just something unnerving and uh, supernatural about his talent. Lovely man. I love his stuff. Um, but, you know, I going back and looking at the covers and trying to remind myself what those stories were, because I remember reading those first four, which were incredibly violent. I mean, you touched on it briefly, Chris, but like if you if someone listening to this hasn't who has Netflix and hasn't watched the Toys Who Made Us um, documentary where they take one of the most famous toy lines every episode and really do a deep dive in it. The idea that that they would take these robots from two or three different lines and not choose them because of their compatibility, but because they're like, well, let's just get this one and this one and this one. And then from this set, we'll get this one. We'll bring them over to the States. And then they would bring the toys to Marvel, uh, Bedansky or whatever his name was, and go, okay, you have one weekend. We need a name and a basic personality for these 24 characters that we're launching in the first generation line. Like they give them a weekend and so they called in. So, like, there's all these uncredited Marvel people. Like, Stan Lee may have named a Transformer, but we don't know. Like, from from what it sounds like in the interviews, people were just throwing ideas and writing things down and, like, balling them up and throwing them on his desk. Uh, so, like, you know, uh, of course Optimus Prime is a leader and so-and-so and... and but like those personalities didn't really come to life until like the kind of the comics wrote them out, and then the uh, an- the animated series very different from the comics. Um, I like, and again, these series are uh, the animated series for all three of the shows that I mentioned earlier. They're a way to sell toys. So you know, there's a reason why you kill G one off in the movie and bring out G three, G two. Is it, well, is not it, even that really. It's just, it's just it's just the 1986 wave. Is it's not even like right. there's a line. It's just like we've got some new toys and we need to get the old toys off the shelf. Let's yeah. murder them. Is the best way to do it. Yeah, yeah. It's like well, it's like you can't play with that toy anymore. They yeah. don't. They're dead. <laughs> yeah, that's the main. Him. That's the main question I wanted to ask you, both of you. Uh, 
these new characters that are in this movie, uh, mm-hmm. the 86 movie, did it bother you that the majority of the movie did not include the characters from the TV series? Well, famously, you know, allegedly kids were upset that Optimus Prime was killed and uh, and were very, you know, cried in the cinemas and wouldn't come out of their bedrooms. I loved it. I, I, I loved it. And, I, and I'm so happy that Optimus Prime died. And weirdly, his death has become the defining aspect of his character, that self-sacrifice has since then become, that's the thing that Optimus Prime does, that he is prepared to, to, to die. And his, his death is dealt with in a really powerful way, I think. I, I, I'm probably slightly weird because I, by the time I probably saw the movie, I think I'd seen other things or, and read other comics with Ultra Magnus and Hot Rod and those new characters in it. So for me, it didn't seem like some random had come in and taken over from my favorites. It felt like, oh, these guys are equally part of the, you know, part, part of the franchise. Um, so I, I didn't mind it at all. The, the th- only thing that bothers me in the movie in that way is the fact that people stop being brutally murdered. That there's a point about half an hour in when pretty much when Starscream's died, when pretty much everybody who is then in the movie is not going to die. So I, I wish it was more. Uh, I wish the science of how you get killed in a Transformers movie was more consistent. Because when Ultra Magnus came, <laughs> they put him back together again. So you're thinking, could we not get the Junkions back to Earth and save Optimus Prime? No, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do that. And, and and they're very merciful to people like Cliffjumper and Jazz and, and Spike and Bumblebee kind of miraculously didn't get chomped by Unicron, but are actually okay at the end. And So I kind of wish it was more consistent. But it, it never bothered me. And I, I think the thing that... I loved as as you say the, those those tech specs, those descriptions of the characters that, that Bob Budiansky wrote on the back of the toys are really key to why this works. That we literally have a version of Transformers to show you how not to do it. We have GoBots where the mythology feels loose and weak, and the names aren't very good. And like the the head, the head guy in GoBots is called Leader One. And the head guy in Transformers is called Optimus Prime. So I'm going to vote for Optimus Prime if they come up in a in a head-to-head. And so it was it was the mythology of Transformers that drew me to it. And even in the cartoon, there were episodes like like War Dawn, you know, which kind of goes back and sees how Orion Pax becomes Optimus Prime. And there was a sense, oh, there's a world here that even though we're basically trying to sell toys, there is a world that we're gradually trying to build. And then the comics for me took that entirely another level. And in the new comics and the IDW ones, the core idea is really this. Uh, they 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 call it they call it functionism. I think I can never say it right, but functionism, and it's this idea that it's not just good versus evil. That there are shades of grey, and that goes back to a point when these were just robots on sentient robots on Cybertron, and whatever form you were born into, whatever mode, alternate mode you had, that defined your life. So if you are born into the body of a robot who transforms into a JCB, you're going to be a blue collar working class guy who builds stuff. And if you're born into the body of a race car or a jet fighter, you're going to be like a flash flyboy, and you're going to look down on the other guys. And Megatron is basically a mine worker who transforms. I don't think he's even a tank. He's just he's just he, he's, he's drilling in the mines. And he says, well, why do we have to be defined by what we transform into? I want to be whoever I want to be. And he leads a revolution. Uh, and that revolution is ultimately the opposite force is a super cop, is Optimus Prime, who is like, no, I, I, we need to keep order. We can't just be attacking and revolting and killing people. And it becomes this 
seeming good versus evil thing, but it begins as something far more gray. And, and, and so they've really grown the mythology again. And so I'm, I'm partly interested in it, just like Doctor Who, it's that sense of, it's not just the characters of the show that you're interested in or the stories of the show. It's how has this, I hate the word franchise, you know, but how has this massive story grown and evolved over in Doctor Who's case, 60 years, but in Transformers, it's nearly 40 years. Uh, I'm fascinated that you hadn't seen the movie until then. That's fascinating. So, 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 did you? What did you think of the soundtrack? Did you think the soundtrack was batshit, <laughs> or were you like, "This is great"? Yeah, this is this is actually cool. the theme was redone by a group named Lion, which was great. I love that. That was great. There were a couple in there where I was like, "What's? <laughs> are they playing a slow song? What's going on here?" And the, <laughs> just a little cheap. And then when the uh, Weird Al Yankovic "Dare to Be Stupid." Yeah. And then they're all dancing around and I was like, what the hell is going on? And, then, and so that that scene was a little weird, but uh <laughs> I'm really hoping that song gets into the Daniel Radcliffe like the Weird Al movie. I want that to be <laughs> I, I thought about that, yeah. When I saw I wonder if that's in there. Um But no, it must seem it must seem nuts. You know, I can't imagine what it's like to come into that cold uh and uh <laughs> and say it like that. But but it's I, I, I literally I, I know people online who have dissected it and told me what's wrong with it. And I'm like, I can't see it. I'm completely blind to it. I just particularly the, the first 20 minutes of uh, the attack on Autobot City through to Prime's death, I just think is so much fun. And, it, and it's exactly what how you dreamt the cartoon that you watched when you were a kid, how you dreamt it would be, how you hoped it would be. It's uh, it's exactly that for me. I find it very quotable. I think the animation is surprisingly decent and and stands up. Yeah, uh, I just uh, you know I I'd, I'd probably if I'd probably edit the script a bit these days, but I I, I love it too much to change it. I do. Um, Chris, anybody that follows you on Twitter has no doubt seen your love of karaoke and your cute little girl Edie. So, have you introduced her to Transformers yet? Who? Uh, well, she sees she she sees these guys around the house, and and I basically have this this awful uh, kind of tier system, a bit like how the toys I think feel in Toy Story three when they get given to the nursery, and they know that that spells certain doom to be handed over to the top. <laughs> that if I buy a Transformer toy and I grow tired of it, then I will give it to Edie, and she will do her worst to it. So it will come back to me with a leg missing or the, the paint. <laughs> So, so she's played with the toys. Um, she has watched a couple of episodes of the cartoon. I read her a bit of the comic tonight, weirdly. I, I've got some of the... Uh, I should get these out. I've got some of the... I've read her... I've got the old classic of Chain of Command, which is a very early uh, UK one, which is very traditional. I read her a bit of that. Uh, oh, we've got some good ones. We've got... Uh, oh, here's Target 2000. This is my favourite issue of all of them. Uh, but this is one of the US ones with Straxus and Blast. Anyway, uh, so Edie has seen bits and bobs. Weirdly, she got more into Thundercats. I, I showed her, because when you're facing this choice of like, should, do I let her watch Cocomelon or, or Paw Patrol or bloody Gabby's Dollhouse? Or do I uh, say, hey, Edie, do you want to come and see something with Lion-O? And, Chita and she really likes Chitara. She thinks Chitara is really cool. Oh, yeah, Chitara is really cool. Don't worry that she's naked at this point. That's fine. But <laughs> focus on she can run really fast. That's great. Uh, so she she enjoyed Thundercats. We, we actually watched about 10 episodes of Thundercats together. 
and uh, and weirdly, I think Thundercats. I, I my heart will always be with Transformers, but I always admired that with that core cast of Thundercats, they 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 ended up when you watch those that like the trial of Lionel thing that they do when he has to fight each of the Thundercats individually. They actually gave a shit about the characters and that kind of setup. They actually gave those core characters a good uh, good bit of development, uh, or at least a kind of it's very clear who they were. Uh, and they were very distinctive. So she likes that. I've not shown her Transformers the movie yet. Uh, and that's not because of the violence, because she watched Jurassic Park the other week and she didn't have nightmares after that. So I think she's probably ready for it. So maybe it's a daddy and daughter day tomorrow. Do you think I should go for it tomorrow? Oh, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'm sure knows. she knows the soundtrack by You've now, got right? the touch! <laughs> I love that soundtrack, man. And Dare, Dare the, 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 the other song that Stan Bush does, Dare, uh, which is the one when Hot Rod's, which is my favourite stuff, when Hot Rod's riding, uh, Hot, Hot Rod and Daniel heading up towards Lookout Mountain, and they go and he goes, oh, Hot Rod, there's a hole in the shuttle, Septicot, and they shoot, they shoot it down. And so on the music that plays during that section, I and then Blitzwing kind of going to shoot him, and he gets smashed by shrapnel, and it's it's great. I love it. It's uh, <laughs> so That's the problem. I'd have to sit her down to watch it and not say anything, and just see if she like, and not be like, hey, this bit, you should watch this bit. This bit's good. What do you think of the music? <laughs> so I'd, I'd have to chill out a bit, I think. That's really difficult when sharing the things that we love with our kids or, you know, that that's the power of nostalgia. I mean, the fact that we're talking about this show that was important to us 40 years ago and is still important to us is, is you know, the fact that, you know, they're still making the toys uh, and, Hasbro Pulse just came out with a whole weekend of new, you know, one full day full of Transformers and one full day full of G.I. Joes and one full day with Power Rangers, you know, and it's become this, uh, I don't know, kind of like this monolith of of culture to to reestablish our connection to the 80s. Things like Stranger Things is making it more popular than ever, but we're still here. We're still talking about, it. we're still buying the toy, still buying the toys. I mean, like, yeah, I've been buying these toys for 40 years. Uh, not a sentence. I thought I was going to be saying about anything uh, in my life. Well, it, it, and it's, in, it's got, there's an emotional element for me because I, I remember, I think I had quite, I, I know that when I stopped being a child and became a teenager, I found that really difficult. And I had this kind of Peter Pan moment of literally saying to my parents, I don't want to grow up. And I don't want to get rid of my toys, which I know sounds stupid and weird, but I, I really felt that at the time. And I remember uh, going into school and I'd be trying to buy Transformers off kids in school when I was 12 or 13. And they'd be like, going, why do you want our Transformers? And I'd be like, well, I don't know, but if I give you this Game Boy game, can I swap it for your Grimlock? And they'd be like, yeah, sure. Yeah, I don't want it. And, <laughs> and I'd get teased at school for still being into it. And, and so for years, I didn't touch them because I thought, oh, no, this is is just like something embarrassing. Uh, and and so it's actually, it's been good for the soul in a way. It's been good for my heart to kind of go back to them and make peace with them in the last, well, really in the last 20 years or so, you know, but sure. it, and but I think with all those franchises and Doctor Who's like this too, it's the fact that if these shows hadn't changed since the form that we first discovered them in, if it was, if all we had was the Transformers cartoon from 84, um, 
And that was it. And we were obsessed with that. And that was our thing that we kept going on about. I'd kind of be a bit bored by that idea. And I'd think, well, are you? that's a slightly boring thing to be really into like that. But I, I love the fact that these, these stories have grown up with us and that the writing has grown up. And that's what I loved about the, the Marvel and UK stuff was that it felt like the writing was already grown up, like it had already jumped ahead from where the cartoon was at. And, and you know, Doctor Who's the same when you see that mythology continue to be unraveled and explored and and flipped and you suddenly what you watch a story and you think blimey i didn't know you could tell a doctor who story like that and that that's still possible 60 years in i think is something as a fan that's what you want every time you want to be like well i i thought i knew what my show could do but maybe i don't you know that's always exciting before we let you go chris is there uh anything any project that you're working on or have worked on recently that you would like to plug that, of course, you can legally plug? Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what, what is pluggable at the moment? Uh, nothing Transformers-based, sadly. If anybody wants to employ me to do any Transformers stuff, that'd be <laughs> great. Uh, but Doctor Who-wise, uh, Season 2 Blu-ray box set is out soon. I know we're, we're doing an event for it at the BFI this uh, the Saturday just after we record this. I don't know what the release date is yet. It can't be too far after that. And for that, I've done a new documentary, hour-long uh, installment of our Looking For series with Toby Haydock, which is looking for David, looking for David Whitaker, uh, which I think is really probably oh. the most like journalistic thing that we've done, because I think there's a lot of stuff in that that's never been heard before and a lot of understanding that fandom will take of this guy who's really like, I think the way we just say it in the documentary is that when at the show's birth, uh, Sidney Newman is the father, Verity Lambert is the mother, but David Whitaker is the uncle. And we're just not, and we just don't talk about him. We just don't give him his <laughs> so we, we properly go to town on on David Whitaker. And and then uh I'm working on a new we did a documentary for season 22 called Location, Location, Location with Colin and Nicola. Uh, out on the road and we've done a, a a new installment of that for the next box set along uh, after season two and uh, I'm currently working on a big feature length biography uh, for another set which is a, a very much in the vein of the one that we did for Liz Sladen and the one that we did for John Nathan Turner uh, which again feels like really un, untouched ground you know kind of doing something looking at an area that really hasn't been talked about before so it feels like we're, we're managing you know something like the location films are us wallowing in the joy of it all but i think when we're doing the looking for all these biographies we're trying to uncover things that have never been uh never been learned about before in doctor who circles so uh plenty of that really and I'm, and, a, and a few big finishes uh that haven't been announced yet so they will be out there soon as well well that's awesome. brilliant I just can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming and spending some time with us. It's been a nice uh, trip down memory lane. It's been a pleasure. Uh, And and the boys have enjoyed it as well. I've tried not to move them around too much, but uh, (laughs) uh, I'm going to put these back on. They've got a special shelf, which uh, is staged in a kind of diorama of uh, them all having a big fight. But uh, Omega and the others can go back to where they belong now. That's all good. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, thank you again. And thank you for joining us on Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Stay for the Transformers. (laughs) 
Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month. This reminds me of the Battle on Alpha 9. The Petra Rabbits with Grimlock, get your noodle out of my face. Me, Grimlock, love Cubs War Stories. You're living one now. Engage the boosters for Cybertron's sake. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. I'll give you Petro Rabbits. Contact! Grimlock order Primacron to make everything like it was before. We are finished. I've amplified the energy parameters, minimized the drive momentum, redirected the ion flow. I've tried everything. Me Grimlock solve problem. Of course, the reverse switch. Why didn't I think of that? You're not smart primitive like me. Grimlock think I did right thing. How brilliant, simple and brilliant. You reversed the energy polarity. 